The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, Tackle Football. Turn it off. Here's Steve Allman, author of Against Football, an ex-fan who confronts the NFL and us all. Whether you love, hate, or are neutral about football, have a listen. This game affects us all. Parents, fans, advertisers, owners, taxpayers, kids, every one of us is touched by football, a multi-billion dollar industry based on ego, greed, disregard for the welfare of players, and our society's taste for violence. Recent studies of the brains of dead NFL, college, and high school players show 96% of NFL players and 79% of all players exhibit CTE, which is a progressive degenerative disease of the brain. Not just from concussions, but from sub-concussions that happen frequently in practice and play. Steve Almond is a man standing up to the NFL and to us. Author of Against Football, one fans' reluctant manifesto, Steve is a 40-year fan who is telling the story and turning off football because of the culture of violence, racism, greed, and misogyny that football feeds and lives off. Steve gives us the facts, but we have the power to act. Tackle football, turn it off, and pass the word. And now, here's Beth. Hi, everybody. Well, I have to tell you that this show has been driving me crazy. <laughs> and it's all Steve's fault. <laughs> I get that a lot. <laughs> you know, no, 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 not in the way that you think, probably, Steve. I've always hated fit- football, unlike you. You're like a 40-year lover of the sport. I hated football from the moment that I saw it. And like Steve, I loved football from the time I was a kid. Uh-huh. Right. So what can I say? But anyway, the thing that happened to me was, you know, it's been bothering me and bothering me and bothering me. But then because I was preparing for the show... I mean, we, I go through mega preparation for every single show. You know, I watch The League of Denial. I, you know, we, I know about your, you know, the contents of your book. I've been reading articles about high school football and college football, you know what I mean? So I can right. be ready for your show. Well, it's gotten to the point that, uh, you know, I became so obsessed that uh, all I could think of was tackling football and just bringing it down. But I know that's not the answer. And so a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about a process that we've been developing. But, uh, you know, to do something to replace football with something else, to give kids another option, which is, I think, the most important thing ever, you know, is to have something else for people that they can really get behind. So we are going to be inaugurating that. But because of that, see, I've been thinking about this all week. I haven't been sleeping. I'm up at two in the morning (laughs) trying to figure it out. I'm not kidding. James can tell you. So uh, this morning I wrote something up and I'm going to be announcing it 
later on in this show about what we at the Interrevolutionary Radio and the Interrevolution.org are proposing to do to help people to get over their addiction to football and to get into something healthier. But in the meantime, we have some unbelievable news of the inner revolution. We have an awful lot of it. So I crammed a lot of information into, you know, James and I put this together so that I wouldn't have to talk that much. So James, take <laughs> it away, the, okay. the our news of the inner revolution. Very good. In honor of our theme of tackling football, we're including two news items that focus on sports and concussions. First, there's a story from Alabama from al.com slash sports. Keep in mind that it's dated November 30th, 2014, but it sure is relevant. Here's a brief summary of the story with a few added comments by us. The title of the article, the, the news item, is The Future of High School Football. Can Concussion Concerns Sack an American Pastime? The long-term effects of head trauma and health of players past, present, and future has been the catalyst for growing safety concerns. The effects of these concerns are already being seen, with declining participation nationwide across recent years in high school football, despite the fact that there are new safety rules being tested. Football is a collision sport, not a contact sport. That will never change. Bad things happening are inherent within the violent nature of the game. We think this statement is particularly telling. In 2013, at the Sports Illustrated website, one high school football coach stated, I put students in harm's way, the very harm from which I would protect my own child. As a teacher, I see my players having academic struggles as they recover from concussions. Every time a player gets one, which is quite frequently, I ask myself how I can help prevent the potential devastation of his life. Players implicitly trust coaches to see to their welfare, but I wonder, can we fully protect them when we're working them up to a fevered pitch and unleashing them on other vulnerable teenagers every Friday night? He said that he would continue coaching football despite the fact that he wouldn't let his own son play, but that his reason was that he was worried about the kind of coach who would replace him if he resigned. Wow, now that's an interesting insight into someone still actively participating in the game. Yeah, I thought that was absolutely a fascinating story, the, you know, because we don't normally get the feeling that football is declining, but there is, uh, there are these indications that parents are beginning to wake up, and of course some football players too. And of course this is what it always takes, an inner revolution for people to actually wake up to what's happening. But I was very moved by what that coach said. Okay, take it away, James. Uh, yes, uh, just on that uh, note, in California and Florida, which are considered hotbeds for high school football, player participation decreased by 7,327 over the last five years, and in Ohio, over 10,000 decrease in high yeah. school football players. Yeah. So it's happening. It is. Even okay. though Steve Allman will not tell other people to turn it off. I will. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go for it, James. Next, and now here's a more next recent horror story. story. <laughs> next horror story. This will make your, you shake your heads in disbelief, but once again, we're seeing some common sense coming into play. And from the New York Times of September the 29th, 
Despite concussions, boxing is still required for military cadets. Required. Did you hear that required? Oh, listen to this. At West Point Military Academy, boxing is an academic requirement for freshmen, one they share with male cadets at the Air Force Academy and midshipmen of both sexes at the Naval Academy. Boxing accounts for nearly one out of every five concussions at West Point and one out of every four at the Air Force Academy and 25% of the concussions at the Naval Academy more than twice as many as football. The injuries regularly sideline cadets from varsity sports, academics, and military training. West Point officials have said, cadets too too concussed to complete the boxing class are required to repeat it and get beat on some more. (laughs) Did you get that? Isn't that incredible? (laughs) Yes, now some parents and policymakers are asking whether the military needs to find better ways and still perseverance than having its best and brightest repeatedly punched in the head. <laughs> okay, I'd like, I'd like to stop that story okay. there because, okay. I mean, the amazing thing is, you know, these are the people that we are relying on in war. And first we concuss them so they can't function <laughs> mentally, and then the, we put our safety in their hands. I mean... Have we all gone mad? Okay, next story. Okay, the next story. Prisoners crush Harvard's debate team and our ideas about criminals. This from the Washington Post, published October the 8th. Last month, a debate team of three inmates from vi- with violent criminal records from a high-security prison defeated a team of three Harvard University undergraduates. The debate took place at the Eastern Correctional Facility in New York, a maximum security prison, about an hour southwest of Bard College, which has been helping inmates get college educations. And here's a quote from the Harvard College Debating Union that they wrote on Facebook after their defeat. There are few teams we are prouder of having lost a debate to than the phenomenally intelligent and articulate team we faced this weekend. Now, we at Interrevolutionary Radio looked into the BARD program, and according to the school's website, this program started with one student who felt called to bring tutoring to inmates, and it grew from there. By 2013, BARD had granted 300 degrees. Since then, this, pro- since then, this program was adopted. Several other liberal arts schools have also adopted similar programs. Graduates of the BARD program have consistently succeeded after release from prison. Is there a message here? Yeah. See, that's really the question. I think we're starting to put all of this together. You know, the inner revolution is about oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And the way that we traditionally treat each other is anything but oneness, accountability, and mutual support. You know, we don't support each other. We compete with each other. Sometimes we kill each other. And uh, we're beginning to see something that there's been some really stupid ways that we have handled men. And particularly handled men, their frustration, their violence, and so on. And that's what we're going to get to in the end. But what we want you to see by all of this, that, again, give people an option. They, I remember reading years ago that it costs more to imprison somebody than to send them to Harvard. I, I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> so, you know, there it is. Send them to Harvard. These don't guys can qualify. Them. Exactly. These, these inmates, there are inmates who qualify for Harvard. And, send and, them there. <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, what we're talking about is why aren't we giving people options that will make them better rather than forcing them into these modes of living where they are just taken over by the negativity, by fear, by poverty, by violence, and so on. Okay, two more short stories, James. Okay, here we come. 
On another topic, the Associated Press on October 3rd offers a story that shows that rebellion, if not inner revolution, is in the air in the Catholic Church. On Saturday, a Vatican Monsignor, Christoph Karasma, Karamsa, was fired after he came out in newspaper interviews in Italy and Poland saying he was happy and proud to be a gay priest and that he was in love with a man whom he identified as his boyfriend. The Vatican fired him on the eve of a big meeting of the world's bishops to discuss church outreach to gays, divorcees, and more traditional Catholic families. He was promptly fired, though he remains a priest, priest unless further action is taken. He says, I came out. This is a very personal, difficult, and thoughtful decision in the Catholic Church's homophobic world. And he asks people to bear this in mind. I have to say who I am. I am a gay priest. I am a happy and proud gay priest. Well, you can see what's going on in our world. I mean, every time I look at the news, I want to cry because there are so many awful things. But um, we're also seeing so many people standing up for what is right. And let's just finish this off with one more story, James. Yes, and this is from one of our listeners, Bob, in San Marcos, California. This news ties together sports and gays. This is from USA Today, which reported that an assistant basketball coach at Bryant University in Rhode Island came out as the openly, the first, the, the only openly gay assistant or head coach among the roughly 3,000 in men's and women's Division I basketball. Now, this is the part of the story that's going to make you smile. And this is a report of what happened. The coach, Chris Burns, broke the news to his guys. Quote, there are parts of this business that lead me to believe what I'm about to tell you is not acceptable here. This is something I struggle with. It's made me consider giving up coaching. It's made me think I'm not supposed to be here. Players are wide-eyed. Burns takes a deep breath. I'm a gay man, he says at last. He goes on to say he hopes none of this will affect the players negatively, that he wants it to unite them. Bryant's players surrounded him with hugs. They tell him they love him. He can exhale. I guess that there's an inner revolution in our world and it's taking on sports. Well, that just, that just made me cry. So I know we had an awful lot of news, and we have so much that we need to learn from Steve Amon. But uh, we wanted to give you all that background, actually, before we invited Steve to start speaking, because, Steve, the world is changing. I know you get a lot of hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there is what we call an inner revolution taking place. People are beginning to relate, connect, be in more into the oneness, be more accountable, become more mutually supportive. And your voice is important and crucial to hear. So we usually take a break pretty soon, but we want to first introduce you to, your, to our audience. And I want you first to tell our audience about your book. Well, the book is an, really just um, an effort to explain how I went from being a very devout fan to... Um, basically being an apostate, um, you know, turning, turning my back on the game. I think, I think football is probably as close as we get to a state religion. And, um, you know, I, I, it's not that I don't, um, it's like St. Augustine, you know, it's not that I'm not tempted by it. I think it's a, an incredibly, uh, it's an amazing form of entertainment. It's really sort of the Doritos of American sporting entertainment. It hits the bliss point every time for me, but it's also, there's a dark side to it that I was unaware, did not care to really be enlightened about, like most fans. And once I saw that and started to connect a bunch of dots, not just about player health, but about the values of the game, the way it's sort of mercilessly monetized and exploited, 
uh, I just uh, realized that I I can't be a sponsor of that in in good conscience. But the reason that I don't say, well, you know, okay, let's lead the charge and have a boycott is, you know, in America, people get to make their own minds up. And all that we can ask is that, uh, and it's really just a request, that they have sort of informed consent, consent about the decisions they're making. So I can't tell somebody, another football fan, that they can't watch. I can only ask that they think about everything that football is beyond just a form of entertainment. What is it as a moral undertaking? You know, I totally understand that, Steve. And I respect that decision. But I am not in your position. <laughs> and right. I really want to say people need to turn this off. And it's like, you know, you come to a point where you need to make that moral decision. And again, I'm not arguing with you in the least. But it's like, you know, when we started to boycott, uh, you know, companies that were supporting apartheid in South Africa. You know, it's like, when are we going to get it? That this is bad, that this is bad in so many ways on so many levels. And uh, But what can we do to offer people so they have something better, so you're not just taking it away? So we are going to go to break now, but when we come back, we're going to have our full time with Steve Almond, author of Against Football. <laughs> Listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Transform yourself and your world. Check out Beth Green's online community, theinnerrevolution.org, where you'll find effective support to become the person you really are. Find a variety of activities, including men's, women's, and family groups, low-fee counseling, workshops, events, and free support. Subscribe to our newsletter and receive a free PDF of Beth's book, Living with Reality. Meet a group dedicated to galvanizing the inner revolution sweeping our world, all at www.theinnerrevolution.org. I'm Beth Green, and I want to help you revolutionize yourself and our world. Take advantage of my powerful intuition in a private consultation that will amaze you. Discover my five books, three CDs of original music, School of Intuitive Counseling, upcoming workshops, trainings, and community. Sign up for my newsletter and get a free PDF of my book, Living with Reality. Tune into Inner Revolutionary TV, my channel on voiceamerica.tv. Find this and more at my website, theinnerrevolution.org. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You're tuned in to Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and co host James Maynard. To share your questions and comments, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to Inner Revolutionary Radio. 
Hi there. Welcome back to Interrevolutionary Radio. Well, our guest is Steve Amon, the author of Against Football, a fan's reluctant manifesto. And uh, he has a correction to make for us, and I'm very happy that he does. And by the way, Steve, we made a video about uh, this interview, and in it, uh, I did talk about that. We didn't have the kind of detailed time, so I'm really glad that you're bringing this up for sure. us right now. Take it away. Sure. Well, uh Here's the deal with the medical data that's emerging uh, around football. It's really in a state of um, it's it's very unclear how prevalent brain damage is. And so let me just try to set out what what the facts are that we know about. Yes. Um, a number of players, NFL players, either they or their families said that they wanted their brains looked at because they were having cognitive difficulty. They thought it might be because of this chronic traumatic encephalopathy, this form of dementia that seems prevalent in, in boxers and, and football players. And so a very high percentage of them, as James mentioned, did, did actually, their brains did reveal autopsy showed that they did have CTE, um, you know, something like 79 out of, uh, you know, 83 or something. But you have to know, remember, that's just the self-selected group of yes. players and their families who wanted their brains examined. The actual prevalence rate among all players is completely unknown. What we do know is that last year, one of the stories that um, was really very much undercovered was that the NFL submitted these documents in federal court in relation to this lawsuit that all these former players had filed against the NFL, in which the NFL actuaries estimated that up to 30% of retired players were going to suffer some form of long-term cognitive ailment, which is a polite legalese way of saying brain damage. So that's the NFL themselves admitting after years of denial and obfuscation and junk science that they they think that up to a third of their employees in this famous workplace in America (laughs) are going to suffer um, long-term cognitive ailments. That should be enough to shut down, it would be enough to shut down almost any other business in America. It would just be lights out, forget it. Um, If that was the the situation at McDonald's or if that was the situation at a you know, a coal mine, or if that was the situation in an industrial plant, 30% neurological, you know, permanent long-term brain damage, brain illness, forget it. We got to shut that company down and figure out another way to, to do business. But because it's football, there's this tremendous sort of moat of denial. And, um, you know, it's it's fans like me, frankly, just choosing to not feel that we are complicit in that arrangement. And that's really the central thing. You know, you're focused very much on the question of whether parents will allow kids to play, whether kids will play the game in, in junior high school, peewee football, or high school football. And those are all very interesting and important questions that have real relevance to, especially for, you know, I've got three kids, so I think about mm-hmm. that all the time. Mm-hmm. But the larger question about the football industrial complex really redounds to individual fans who incur none of the risk. The thing about watching football is none of the fans sitting on their couches have to worry about either themselves suffering from some kind of bodily or brain injury or a loved one. The reason that we essentially can root for the game where the inevitable byproduct of it is that a significant number of the players end up brain damaged is precisely because we're insulated from the risk. It's what makes football very different from something like smoking, where the risk was incurred by the individual smoker. And it's really what protects people. If you want to talk about the inner revolution, What needs to happen is for individual fans to recognize that they're not just passive in the 
in, in the arrangement. They are actually sponsoring the game when they watch it because so much of the revenues from the game come from advertising you know, and the passive consumption that we do on our couches every Sunday, Saturday, Thursday. Oh, my God, Steve, I could not agree with you more. And um, I think that, you know, what you're bringing up, of course, is uh, this, this outrage that I feel about the NFL and uh, the lying and the complicity and the money-making and the industry and all of that. And I want to add to that, not to take anything away from that, that uh, it's also happening to millions of kids who are out there playing football because their heroes are on the screen. You know, I, I see such a connection between that because I think you said that you started uh, connecting, bonding with your dad around football. Sure, yeah. And, um, you know, I have clients who are like, okay, they have this huge flat screen TVs. They've got the f- football going. They're watching drinking beer, eating popcorn, whatever they're doing. You know, the son or the daughter comes in, and if they want to be with dad, you know, you sit there and you watch football too, and it just becomes like this family occasion, right? Right. <laughs> and and uh, so this kid already has the idea that dad admires these guys. Well, and, dad does admire them. <laughs> I mean, yes, exactly, right. exactly. Dad does admire them. So if they want to be admired by dad, they want to be like those football players. So they start, you know, puffing themselves up into these little heroes. And when they're so young and they're already getting caught up in this whole competitive, violent way of being males in the world. And, uh, and nobody stops that. Nobody says there's something wrong with that. Well, I think, um, you know, what you're getting at is uh, I feel that football is essentially symptomatic of American culture and, and especially the sort of unexamined, unreconstructed part of American culture that essentially has put up with the idea of, for instance, women being equal to men in the workplace and at home, has put up with the idea that um, people have the right to love whomever they want and they shouldn't be uh, deprived of legal rights because they happen to have a same-sex partner or whatever. People have put up with that, but I think deep within a certain unreconstructed part of masculine culture and, and identity is a yearning for patriarchal dominion. And oh, for, my God. I, oh, I so agree with you. Go on, and, go on. And, well, a way of being that doesn't suffer from the frustrations and disappointments and complications of having to truly live up to enlightened 2015 American values. And that the, the center of that, the capital of that place the refuge really is football and sports in general, but football in particular. And, you know, I feel it as well. When I, when I was watching football, one of my favorite things to do as I write about in the book was to go to a bar with my friend, Sean, who's another wonderful dad, a sensitive guy, a thoughtful guy, works, you know, in a very sophisticated job at MIT. He's this deeply humane, thoughtful guy, was a great football player who was so good, in fact, as I write in the book, he, he at about age 11 or 12, he uh, hit a guy on the football field and thought he'd killed him. And he really stopped playing after that because he was so um, shaken up by that. But he still loves the game and is still deeply connected to it. And And we would seek a refuge from the complications and frustrations of our lives as fathers and breadwinners and, you know, sort of um, trying to be good, faithful, uh, attentive husbands. And all that <laughs> stuff is 
it's wonderful, but it's also wonderful. And there's a particular kind of buzz about just going to watch a football game. And I know, Beth, you don't necessarily understand this, but it's yeah. extraordinarily, and I'm a writer. That's what I do for a living. Yeah. So I think a lot about narrative and what, and suspense and drama and what interests us in a story. And mm-hmm. football games are really brilliantly structured narratives. In, they have just enough scoring, not too much like basketball, not too little like soccer. The risk that the players incur is part of the reason we thrill to it. The grace and athleticism and poise of the players is quite real. And I think in as much as I can condemn a lot about the industry, the sort of vulgar, nihilistically greedy industry that surrounds football, you have to remember that if you really want fans to have an inner revolution football fans, you have to honor the beautiful, valuable things that they do get from watching the game, which are real and shouldn't be discounted or called savage or reduced and flattened out into uh, you know something that we're derisive of. It is a beautiful thing to watch any great athlete perform at the highest level. It is absolutely the body making a miracle. And there's a kind of improvisatory sense of liberation and a strategic density to football that is very real. Uh, you know, the games are unbelievably thrilling to watch. That's the reason you have guys like, you know, Richard Nixon. I wrote about this in the book. Richard Nixon and Hunter S. Thompson met once in their lives. These two guys who were at opposite ends of the moral and political spectrum. And they, they were sitting there and for an hour, all they did was talk about football. And as much as Hunter S. Thompson thought that, you know, Nixon was this kind of sociopath, he said, wow, that guy knows his football. Well, that's a great example. The thing that we don't have in the, in the United States in particular is a safe, sanctioned way for men to really relate and connect. And football provides that, and it's able to bridge all these gaps, class gaps, political gaps, moral gaps, socioeconomic gaps. You automatically have a ticket into a certain kind of discourse. That's a beautiful virtuous thing and there's a lot of virtue in the game itself and so my book is not an attempt to condemn football but to say here's what's amazing and remarkable about it and alluring about it and unfortunately that is attached to all this other toxic stuff here's an idea that i'd like to share too yeah uh, we could keep all of those wonderful qualities if we were able to shift over to something like flag football which is Basically, you, you try to grab a flag out of somebody's belt, or they're trying to run by, or they're, they're catching a pass, and you pull the flag out, and that's where they stop. Uh, that, that way, you avoid so much of that violence, so much of that brutality, so much of that brain damage. So yeah. that could be a possible outlet for people who just have to have some form of football, but there still might be some element of touch, obviously, in terms of trying to block and so on. But uh, nonetheless... Uh, there is that option as opposed to what we have now, which is the culture of violence. Well, yeah, I mean, the tough thing is that there is a certain, um, you know, portion of the audience. And I think it's important for people, if they're really going to have an inner revolution, right, they've got to be honest about why they come to certain things, why they consume them. And I think for a certain number of fans, probably a much larger number than would admit to it, you know, you'd have to give them truth serum. The fact that the game is dangerous, that there are big impacts, that the players incur more risk is part of the inherent thrill of it. It's why it's more exciting than other games and also more typically um, appealing to Americans in particular. We are, as a citizenry, uh, a a group of people who have a hyper-violent popular culture. 
we are swimming in a kind of pornographic violence. And the fact, you know, football is an expression of that. It's not the chief source of it. It's not the cause of it. It's an expression of the need for men and some women to experience a certain kind of charge that comes from almost a spiritual regeneration that comes from violence, the consumption of violence, the sort of vicarious absorption of those thrilling spectacles, those dangerous spectacles. And in that sense, to me, it's really kind of symptomatic of a, of a certain kind of decadence that feels Roman in nature. You know, this is what cultures, empires do at the end of their run when things have become... When we become sort of disconnected as a society and found, you know, we, we don't have empathic ways of connecting anymore. We have bread and circuses, which distract us from uh, the malfeasance and irresponsibility and, you know, greed of our leadership and our political structures and so forth. I think football is there in many ways to kind of feed a sense of rage and frustration that is purely the result of late model capitalism doing a number on our souls. But isn't that, that is the point. And I think that people have to be completely disconnected from themselves and their own souls in order to watch football and not see what's happening. You know, when I was a little girl, I was brought up, you know, with classical music and stuff like that. I came from a working class family. Believe me, we were not, we didn't have it, but we were Jewish and so we had a lot of culture, right? Free culture. And, um, you know, there was football in our house a little bit, but I, I walked away when I was a child. I looked at this because I'm an empath, right? I'm, I'm psychic and intuitive. I could feel it. It's not just brain injuries. It's all the injuries. It's these right. people are hurting each other. And I walked away and I couldn't look at it. But, you know, I looked at ballet. And right. these, these people are also hurting themselves. And uh, you know what I mean? There's the same issue, but of course, and it looks completely different. Oh, they're standing on their toes. They're so graceful. They weigh 32 pounds. They haven't right. eaten in six years. You know what I mean? <laughs> George Balanchine. And, uh, you know, they make these will. And I can't help it. I look at it and I see the beauty in it, but I have to turn it off. Because right. there, there's something in me that says, no, that's not the way to feed ourselves we need to look at whatever is causing this need to be so violent or as you know as in the case of football i agree with you i mean it's the car crashes that you see you know nascar races it's uh, the guy getting punched out in the you know in the ring uh it's but but what it re- what i think it is reflecting and i don't think you would disagree with that i think we're really on the same page is that we are so disconnected from ourselves and each other that we don't feel in our bodies th- how it is feeling to those football players. It's, it's like everything is a video game where right. these are unreal characters. Uh, war is so much, you know, uh, done by people who push buttons and drop bombs somewhere else. They right. don't even have to see it. You know, right. at least when they drop the bomb over Hiroshima, somebody had to see that bomb go off. And so that we're so disconnected from ourselves. And I have, to, I believe, I trust, I have to, or I would give up. <laughs> that if people start to get it, if they read your book and then they begin to see the numbers and they hear people like Chris Borland 
you know, who retired right. early. And he talks about what was going on at the University of Wisconsin and the physical damage and all of that, you know, and, and how unreal that game was. And you begin to feel in your body when you reconnect to yourself and you reconnect in an empathic way to everyone else on the planet, whether they're black, they're white, they're gay, they're straight, they're Muslim, that whatever they are, then we begin to feel what we are doing to each other and to ourselves. That's when accountability can happen and when we can make that decision and oops I see we're ready for commercial break but we have lots more and we will be hearing more from Steve Almond when we come back think you've seen everything there is to see in online television let us surprise you visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports health business and more on demand 24 7 Transform yourself and your world. Check out Beth Green's online community, theinnerrevolution.org, where you'll find effective support to become the person you really are. Find a variety of activities, including men's, women's, and family groups, low-fee counseling, workshops, events, and free support. Subscribe to our newsletter and receive a free PDF of Beth's book, Living with Reality. Meet a group dedicated to galvanizing the inner revolution sweeping our world, all at www.theinnerrevolution.org. I'm Beth Green, and I want to help you revolutionize yourself and our world. Take advantage of my powerful intuition in a private consultation that will amaze you. Discover my five books, three CDs of original music, School of Intuitive Counseling, upcoming workshops, trainings, and community. Sign up for my newsletter and get a free PDF of my book, Living with Reality. Tune into Inner Revolutionary TV, my channel on voiceamerica.tv. Find this and more at my website, theinnerrevolution.org. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're tuned in to Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and co-host James Maynard. To share your questions and comments, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to Interrevolutionary Radio. Welcome back to Interrevolutionary Radio, and today we are interviewing Steve Allman, who is the author of Against Football a fan's reluctant manifesto. And uh, Steve is just great. He has so much information and he's got so much depth of insight. And I would like to come back to the issue of the culture of violence and make two points. One is that women are part of it. You know, I, I, it's something that I'm sad to report. But not only do you see women jumping up and down at football games and cheerleaders going out there and, you know, women say yes to men who play football, um, but it's it comes back to some part of women that wants that patriarchal society, that wants to feel that there's some masculine man who's somehow going to save us from the problems of the world and all those dangers. And, hey, guys, it's not real. When we set men up to be violent or powerful, what we're doing is we're setting them up to hit us. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're, we're, we're setting them up to try to be the heroes that they can never be. They can never really even live up to that. 
And we're setting up men to carry on that old patriarchy. So we can't have it both ways. We can't be asking for equality and at the same time ask men to protect us because that just doesn't work. But the other point about that, you know, the, the culture of violence is that I, you know, one thought that I have is that people really feel very disempowered in our world. Uh, you know, you go to work. I don't care how high you are in the corporate totem pole. You're, there's always somebody else you have to, you know, listen to. You feel like everybody's pushing on you. Everybody's pulling on you. Everybody wants something from you. Uh, you know, people feel like they're very disempowered in our world. And it, the, the, the disempowerment comes out in violence in so many ways, whether you're, you know, a Muslim who feels disempowered and trying to blow up other people or <laughs> you're a guy who feels disempowered or a woman who feels disempowered and beats on her kids. I mean, we're, I think that that is really the, the epidemic of our having not real power. And real power comes from the connection to ourselves and from our own wholeness. And I don't think we've got it. Yeah, you know, I think one thing that you're getting at here is football, I think, for a lot of uh, men in particular, but women as well, um, they're looking f- for something that grants violence a, a, an acceptable and even a heroic context. I mean, you have to realize that the culture of football is very much an emphasis on a, f- a definition of courage that's purely physical courage. There's very little about, and in fact, um, it's the opposite of moral courage. You know, I think a lot about uh, people like Martin Luther King, um, since so many of the players in the NFL and at the college level are African American, yes. you think, well, gee, what would uh, you know? What would Martin Luther King make of this game? What would he make of the idea that the way to empower, quote unquote, certain kids in our culture, by which we really mean poor kids, kids from economically disadvantaged neighborhoods, and usually kids of color, is not to give them better schools or support for working families or economic opportunity in their communities. No, the way to do it is to give them the possibility of this golden ticket of becoming really, really rich and really famous for being really good at at an extraordinarily violent game. It's completely perverse. But on the other hand, for fans themselves, if if we're really going to ask that people look within themselves and try to wean themselves off the game. I I wrote the book in the way I did because I didn't want to scold people and say, you're idiots, you're violence, you're savages, get away from that screen because that's not really how you get across to people. You have to say, I too love the game. I too find value in it in these particular ways. It's filling a certain void within me that desperately needs to be filled. The writer Frederick Exley in his novel, his wonderful novel, uh, a fan's note right, right, writes a, a line that's something like, I gave myself over to the New York Giants and my recompense was a feeling of being truly alive. That's an actual feeling that a lot of fans, especially of football, have that they the game makes them feel alive in a certain way. And the question then becomes, are there other ways to be made to feel alive, to be brought out of the kind of neurasthenic haze that I think late model capitalism puts a lot of people in, from which the only way to be awakened is sort of extreme sanitized violence? Well, yes. But see, I can't say what you say, uh, Steve. So I can't say I love the game. I, I can't. I don't love the game. I, I, I cannot disconnect myself 
from right. the pain of the people. I am not shaming anybody, and I hope I haven't given that impression. I'm just saying that I don't feel that way. I can't say that. But I can say that I understand that people have a need for self-expression and empowerment. And, in fact, we're starting a campaign. This is the thing that's been keeping me up for nights <laughs> after, after your book. And uh, the League of Denial and everything is like, what can we do, people right. who really want to help? And uh, today I kind of came up with an idea, which we've been sort of playing with, which is called Unleashing the Power of Kids, Mobilizing Them for Fitness, Cooperation, Service, and thought and it starts with wanting to replace football with something better and looking at what kids really need you know that they need physical fitness I never got physical fitness I've been sick since I was a child Hmm. and I think that may be part of why I'm so sensitive not only to the concussion issue but the physical damage because I know what it's like to live in chronic pain I've had it for 55 years because I became chronically ill when I was 15 and uh I could never do any of that stuff. And I said, you don't know what you're going to live with. You have no idea what this is really like. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I can see the tremendous value of physical fitness, how it's important for people on every level. But I also see that we can train people through physical fitness to cooperate. I, I believe that. I believe that our games could be, I mean, James and I had this funny thing. The, the first time I ever played a sport was I took a golf club I couldn't hit it the right way because I couldn't really pick it up. But I would just like kind of, I don't know, swing it. And James and I played golf. We played the same ball. Hmm. No and competition. So, no competition. So, right. if, you know what I mean? And right. I, I, it was so fantastic. I, for the first time, I felt like I could actually do something physical. And, and same, same when we play vol- uh, badminton. We, we try to keep the badminton, the, the birdie going instead of trying right. to score points off of our opponent. And right. it's so much so, fun. So it's cooperative and it's fun. And, and James hits it to me because he knows that I can barely move. And then the <laughs> other thing that, you know, the kids need that we all need is service because we need to feel like we're making a contribution. That's real empowerment, isn't it, Steve? When you feel like you've given something to somebody, you feel empowered in your heart. Like you, you don't feel so angry and destructive. And I mean, I don't want to lecture, but I just want to complete this. And thought is we need to support kids to do critical thinking or they're going to recreate the world as badly as we have. And right. so we're looking... <laughs> To, to create things like super supportive Sundays, unleashing the power of kids and giving kids these experiences. What, I don't think it's all accidental. Well, I mean, I know you're not saying it's accidental, but I think we're training ourselves and our children to find these outlets gratifying and satisfying. Why can't we use some consciousness and say, look, this is too damaging. This is too hurtful. Uh, too many women are beaten on Super Bowl Sunday. Mm-hmm. You know, the violence against women goes up. This is not good. You know, why can't we train kids to be conscious and to be healthy and to have real empowerment? Well, I guess, you know, maybe they would overthrow the whole darn system if they really got that good. But, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, those are the kind of things that I'm playing with to not to shame people, but to say there are alternatives. I mean, what have you been thinking about? Well, I think that the the central mission that I had in writing this book was to find a way to 
speak to fans of football, people who, because after all, you know, I'm not interested in preaching to people who are already turned off to the game. I really wanted to speak to people who, for whom it is, as with me, was a big part of my psychological, emotional, even spiritual life. I really was deeply into the game. So those are the people who I think recognize that the game is incredibly important to them, but also have this nagging feeling that there's something about it that is troubling and that they feel, you know, it doesn't express their values. The best thing that I could do was to say, I want to document this moral journey that I went on from being a, a really hardcore fan to being somebody who increasingly realized that in all these different ways, it was, it was going against the kind of society that I want to see, the kind of parent I want to be, the kind of citizen I want to be, and so forth. And that's the central thing that I want people to do is to read the book so I'm not the only person struggling with it. And so that eventually people can feel that they can step away from the game, not necessarily stop watching it altogether, but stop allowing it to consume so much of their internal life, take so much of their time, money, and attention that might otherwise go towards leading a more examined life, which I think necessarily means more connected, more empathic, more vulnerable to the world, and so forth. I just, I don't know exactly how that happens in a mass way until you speak to the, you know, more than half of the country watches the Super Bowl and probably I'll say maybe a third or a fourth of the country are are really serious football fans. Mm -hmm. And those are the guys who, or at least some of the people who I want to to connect some of the dots that we as as Americans tend to keep unexamined. We all love bacon, but we don't want to visit the slaughterhouse. Oh, God, yes. Right. So what, (laughs) what I'm trying to get people to do is just in this one small way, examine the sport, everything that it is, and um, then make up their own minds. I, I really feel like, you know, it's a great thing to, uh, to, you know, be somebody who says, I want to lead a campaign and so forth. The only campaign I want to lead is the inner revolution of individual fans who read about the game, who love the game, who love the players and admire them, and are forced to think a little bit more deeply about, well, what exactly does this sport do to the players themselves who I so admire? What is it... You know, how, are the, how has the sport found a way to take my idealistic, um, ath- my devotion to athletic heroism and turned it into this huge nihilistic engine of greed? How, you know, what's, what are my options here? And you're, really your only options are you either turn away from the game or you are supporting the, the larger scheme. You can't say, well, I, I really hate the game or I, I don't like the violence. If you're watching it, you're a sponsor. I think, I think fans have a whole bunch of rationalizations that they come up with. I know because I did myself for so many years. And the real key when it's really going to start to change is when people do that difficult step of starting to do some self-examination around what the game is and why they're drawn to it and what they're, not just what it does for us, but what it does to us. Well, I think you've already had an impact. Uh, you know, many of the people around me say, I, I was never a football fan, but the rest of us on Interrevolutionary Radio were, <laughs> you know, people, so I'm always... Including myself. That's yeah, right. I mean, here's just what you were describing. Here's James, a sweet, sensitive guy, you know, and he's going, yay! But anyway, a lot of the people around, <laughs> you know, they're looking at your book and they're, they're following up on this and, and they're saying what's next. You know, right. what do we do? And I also know of you know, parents, because I wanted to get a haircut. 
and and God, who speaks to me all the time, said, "Tell her about the Steve Almond show." <laughs> so huh. I did. I told her about our radio show, and I told her about your book, and I told her about you know many other things. And I didn't know why I did that. And then she said, "Well, I have a son, and he wants to play football." Right. And right. I don't know what to do. And I said, "Well, I mean, I didn't say don't let your." You know, it's not like that. But I said, well, let me tell you, this is what I'm finding out. But see, she doesn't have an alternative. I know another mom who's talking about, you know, I see it. I know it. I know about the violence. But my son wants to play football or, you know, it's better than having him in a gang or whatever it is. I think that your book really sets us up for the next question. Which yeah. is, and so once we know, what do we do? And, you know, what can I as a parent do other than, you know, try to tie my son down? And unfortunately, a lot of parents <laughs> push their kids f- towards uh, those games, too, because they're so, con- uh, this is a horrible statement, but I know there's a lot of truth to this. They feel frustrated in themselves. They feel disempowered in their lives. And they want their kids to go out there and, you know, become the hero that they can't be. So they feed this in their kids. And then their kids are killing themselves in order to live up to their parents' expectations. You know, it's interesting. There's a beautiful poem that I put uh, just a little bit in the book. Um, You know, this amazing poem, uh, Autumn Comes to Harper's Ferry, Virginia, in which the the poet James Wright talks about the fathers and the shame of the fathers and how every every fall the players, these young guys, gallop towards each other's bodies, sort of he calls them suicidally beautiful. You know, you're tapping into a lot of what, for me anyway, drew me to football, a lot of what draws a lot of fans to football. But I have to say that I I think my feeling – my real feeling about it when I I sort of um, am honest is – it's summed up by this guy, Dave Megacy. He wrote a, an amazing book called Out of Our League uh, about, you know, 50 years ago. And he's a guy who quit the game because not just because um, he, you know, turned away from it, but because he felt it turned, it weaponized young men. It yes. turned them into killing machines. And he yes. saw the link between what was happening in the NFL and its football's propagation in the culture and what was happening in Vietnam, the war of his time. Yeah. What, what Megacy had to say about the game was profound. He said, basically, when society changes in the way I hope it will, football will be obsolete. And in this way, I want to say, I think it's great if I want everybody to, to find against football and press it on people who are ambivalent fans, reluctant fans, guilt-stricken fans, or just hardcore fans, and say, hey, you might enjoy this book. It's funny. It's weird. It's not as, um, it, you know, it's it's not sort of on a soapbox. This guy's a real fan. He's really anguished about the game. Yes. But I think the in the long term, it's symptomatic. Society needs to change in a lot of ways, fundamentally, because football's ultimately uh, an outgrowth of a symptom of what's happening with American culture, this sort of sanitizing of violence to make it acceptable, uh, the way in which we need this escape from the doldrums of our lives, from these frustrations, from the, the chaos of our inner lives. And that stuff that is much bigger than football, making football go away isn't going to solve those problems. I think it's just the other way around. Starting to address those larger problems will diminish our addiction to and our dependence on football as an expression of our selfhood. Absolutely. James, tell us what's happening next week. Okay. Uh, Coming up next week, is there an inner revolution happening in medicine? Meet Drs. Duncan and Myers and see for yourself. 
Remember the good old days when family doctors really knew you, paid house calls, and had time to talk? Would you be willing to pay a reasonable monthly fee for that? What if the fee also covered basic services and same-day appointments? This model exists. Direct Primary Care, DPC, is the latest model of family medicine, and doctors around the country are experimenting with it. Because they are freed from building insurance, they have more time for you. How does it work? How do specialists and insurance fit in? Are they all equal in their care for you? We've invited some practitioners to talk about their version of DPC. But they add another revolutionary component. They are also naturopathic doctors. Incorporating nature's wisdom, alternative modalities, modern medicine, and old-fashioned doctoring. Find out more from Drs. Duncan and Myers, two of the three doctors whose Southern Oregon practice, Siskiyou Vital Medicine, is the only naturopathic direct care clinic in the country. And now for a final word from Beth. Well, this is a kind of funny juxtaposition because here we've got two guys who are out of three practicing medicine who are really into healing. And, uh, you know, I said to uh, McLean yesterday, I said, you know, what about football? You know, I said, oh, no. So anyway, uh, there's, there's the other side of men, the nurturing, loving side of men. And I want to support that. I want to support that in all of us. And I want all of us to, to listen to what Steve Allman is saying, to read his book, to share this, and to really start asking the kind of questions that he's asking us to ask ourselves. So there'll be more about this as we continue talking about unleashing the power of kids. We are just getting started. Steve, thank you. Bless you for everything you've done. All right. Thanks so much. It was great to be with you. Thank you, Steve. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.